there, there are a number of different writers in Bavi's period who try and write works in dogmatic theology in response to this great crisis of faith that comes about in the generation before. Um, but then Bavink is the one that we still talk about because um, his, his work was, was the best by far from his generation in terms of its, of its um, rigor, in terms of its capacious um, engagement with, uh, with scriptural exegesis, with the history of the development of, of Christian theology, particular doctrines, but also the insight and the precision um, with which Bavink could, could then derive these doctrines forward as well. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine an Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. I remember when I first started studying theology and uh, really was looking for theological systematics uh, that I could invest in, it was just at that time that uh, Herman Bobbink's Reformed Dogmatics were released in English. And I remember receiving these on Christmas morning as a gift uh, from my wife. We, we, had, we were just married and I was, well, I was ecstatic. Now you may think that uh, I'm quite the nerd for uh, Christmas morning type of gifts and, and uh getting excited over someone like Herman Bovink, but I think that probably I'm in good company with many of our listeners. I don't think that it is an overstatement to say that, well, in the last decade that uh, Herman Bovink's reform dogmatics have not only influenced but transformed so much of the theological discussion both in America and overseas as well. In part, that's not just because Herman Bovink brings to bear uh, his Reformed theology, but he does so in a way that not only complements his literary style, but also is really an example of how a, a theologian can go about dogmatics in a way that is not only faithful to classical Christianity, but also is seeking to engage some of the most significant challenges of the day, not just from the perspective of theology, but also from the perspective of apologetics, history, and so, so much more. One of the things I learned to love so early on as I started to read through Herman Bovink's Reform Dogmatics is just how well acquainted he was with history, uh, not just church history, but with the really the development of historical thought, theological thought, and how that influenced him, not just to uh, form his Reformed dogmatics, but then influenced him in a certain way and prepared him and equipped him to then turn and answer some of the most difficult challenges to Christianity from the culture around him. Well, it's hard to think of anyone better to come on the Credo podcast than James Eglinton, who is uh, a lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, you may know him from some of his other uh, works and writings. Of course, uh, mo more recently, he has 
published a critical biography called Bovink with Baker Academic. And let me just tell our listeners at this point, if, if you haven't if you don't have your hands on this, if you haven't read through it, you are missing out. Uh, do get a copy. Uh, you will not only be introduced to Bovink the theologian, but also Bovink as a husband, uh, a pastor, uh, a professor, uh, and and really an apologist. So uh, this this biography in particular, I would say, is is in many ways groundbreaking, and I think our listeners are in for a treat. James, uh, you know, there's so much we could say about you. Uh, First of all, thank you for coming on the Credo Podcast. I should mention to our listeners uh, just about, you know, some of your own uh, contribution in your own context. Uh, You know, you are not only uh, a lecturer there, but um, you are one that speaks a number of different languages. And I, I have to say from the start, I really, really do envy you uh, because uh, you not only know, say, English, but uh, Dutch, of course, if you're writing on Herman Bovink, as well as French, and uh, I think I'm right in saying Scottish Gaelic. Is that is that correct? That is correct, yeah. The, the blessing of growing up surrounded by more than one language and have always loved languages and learning them or trying to learn them and uh, trying to use them. So, yeah, I've picked up a few over the years. Now, I have four children, and you have four children, and I I have to ask, how in the world do you uh, get through uh, writing and completing a biography of this size with all those children running around your house? Yeah, very slowly, and uh, (laughs) generally by not working in the house. Um, (laughs) When I'm there, my kids, they're just not used to me being around and uh, Mm. not being there to play with, so uh, Yeah. yeah. Not much of this biography happened in, in our house. The, I think the only part that did was when I was compiling the index at the end. And I had one of my, my twins. I've, I've Well, they're now six years old, but twin boys who were five at that point. And a lot of the indexing was done with with at least one of them trying to sit next to me and point to things on the screen and ask me what it was about and why I was okay. working on something so boring. So if there are mistakes in the indexing, it probably came about through some uh, some editorial assistance from, yes. from a small boy. Well, I, I think that I think that's forgivable. At least I can say that uh, having children of my own. <laughs> well, you know, I'm so excited to talk about your biography. Um, and you know, there's uh, goodness. Our listeners really need to to read all of it to to catch the full scope. But uh, given the Credo podcast and and our focus on doctrine and theology and dogmatics, uh, this really is a just a perfect match here. I'd love to focus in though on on really the middle section of your biography because it's right there that you start to peel back the layers so that we can see how Bovink. Is, is motivated and what's driving him to to write these reform dogmatics that, that we so love today. But before we do that, in, in order to understand those dogmatics, maybe we need to take a step back uh, and go back in time the, to those years, 1874 through 1880 and, and beyond into the 1880s as well, in which Bovink is, or this is early, this is early on, and, and he's He's really encountering modern theology, uh, first off at Leiden and, and then elsewhere, and he's experiencing kind of the effects of modernity, but not just as something that's out there, say, in, in the culture, 
but uh, something that has actually influenced perhaps even some of his own colleagues and students. How Maybe you could start us off and, and just talk to us about what is happening in, in the 1870s and 80s uh, to create this type of world where Bavink, as a reform thinker, is experiencing and, and encountering other reform thinkers, but they have a very different program. Mm. Yeah, that, thanks. Um, so this is a really important part of um, the history of theology in the Netherlands and also in, in Bavink's life as well. He was a student in the, 18, um, in the 1870s. That's when he went to study um, so when we talk about modern theology, is there two two things that that could mean? Um, one is to talk about modern theology as an umbrella term, and that that encapsulates um, a whole range of usually liberal Protestant thinkers who are writing theology that's very influenced by the Enlightenment. Um, so that that's a catch-all term, you know, that, that a lot of different theologians stand under. But within the Netherlands specifically there was a school of theology, of, of theological thought at the University of Leiden that was known as modern theology. And that was the the, the, the brand that it, that it carried. And um, and it's very idiosyncratic. So it's, it's quite a specific way of thinking about theology in the modern age. And the professors who were working in Leiden at that point were really um, national celebrities. They were huge names nationally in the Netherlands, um, also internationally for some of them as well. And their approach to theology was um, to try and th rethink Christian theology in a way that um, that makes it fit neatly within what we could call a modern scientific materialistic worldview. So you know we now understand how cause and effect works in the in the material world, for example. So how do we rethink? Um, how do we rethink God, or how do we rethink um, uh, key Christian doctrines? So there's there's a kind of doctrinal um, revisionism that's going on there, um, but there's also a very distinct view of what Christianity is for in in culture and in Dutch culture and in the world, and that was very influenced by um, a German philosopher uh, Jörg Hegel, and what these guys in the modern theology school were arguing in effect was that we don't need Christianity anymore. Mm. And um, Christianity is now in the last phase of its planned obsolescence. So Christianity was useful in the past as a stage of the, the development or the evolution of the modern civilized, secularized, um, scientifically led culture, a secular culture. But it was a phase that we needed to get to where we are now. But we don't need it anymore, and we don't. We certainly won't need it in coming generations. Um, so there's no miracle, for example. These guys talked. Um, the only really useful thing that the church can provide in society is diaconal care for the poor, but the secular state can do a better job of that. So even for the that kind of practical use for the church, that that's not really necessary anymore. They argued. Um, so that was the really the, the glamorous, intellectually exciting school of thought in the Netherlands in the mid-19th century. And um, so what's interesting with that is that you find a lot of students who go to study under these uh, celebrity professors and very famous professors, uh, not celebrities in the, in, in the modern, well, in our sense anymore, but 
public, publicly recognizable figures. And you have students who go to study under them and then who take this all to heart and um, who then abandon the Christian faith. And you have a lot of the most um, interesting public intellectuals in the Netherlands at that point, journalists, art critics and so on, had studied theology at Leiden and then conclude that, um, that, well, we should do something else with our lives, but we don't call ourselves Christians anymore, at least not in any believing sense. So the modern uh, modern theology in that local sense, uh, the Leiden School of Theology, is, is a really significant thing in the backdrop to Hermann Bavink. But as that generation um, of modern theologians starts to run out of steam a bit, and students still keep on coming to study under them, but finding them very predictable, you know exactly what they're going to say, you know, their their program is well known. You find students come along and are quite critical towards their theology and start to think, no, maybe Christianity does have a future in the Netherlands. Maybe maybe there are other ways that we could think about what, what it might mean or might have to offer to our society. So you get um, rival schools of thought that spring up that try and take its place. And um, and the, the Kuyperian school of thought, or the, the neo-Calvinist school of thought, as it's uh, otherwise known, is one of those schools of thought that comes along and really challenges this uh, modern theology school. And um, so in that context, then you have Abraham Kuyper and you have Hermann Bavink as the, the leading theologians who are trying to challenge um, the kind of relationship of Christianity to the modern age and to modern culture. Um, so that kind of sets the scene for, I guess, um, Bavink's own emergence as a very important theologian. Um, uh, and also sets the stage for why he goes on to write his reform dogmatics. Um, because with the moderns and the, the kind of challenge that they pose to Christianity, um, it's really a, an existential challenge for what can we believe about any of this? Um, and in what sense must we believe or should we believe in the claims of Christianity? Uh, so Abraham Kuyper had also studied under these modern theologians in Leiden a bit before Bavink did, because he was uh, he was a bit older than Bavink. And um, so when, when Kuyper was a student on, at Leiden under these theologians, um, there was one quite famous lecture that he attended where um, the professor of, of um, well, the professor Johannes Scholten, who was also Bavink's doctoral supervisor, he he announced in, in their class that the resurrection didn't happen. And the students stood up to applaud uh, because they thought mm. that this was so so brave and such a courageous thing to say, um, such a fundamental truth to deny. Um, so with that as the this massively influential school in their, uh, in their culture, um, it does pose all of these huge questions about um, what can we believe and what must we believe? So there's a crisis of, of belief in the first place and of, of questions are uncertainty and, and doubt and faith. And um, so what you find is that as that um, generation runs out of steam and then passes away, you actually find a, a resurgence of people writing about dogmatics. And in that context, of course, dogmatic theology is subtly different to what we talk about when we talk about systematic theology. Mm. So sy the, the systematic task is part of dogmatics. You know, it's, it's the kind of mechanics of how we think through doctrines and how they're constructed and how they all relate to each other. But in this context, dogmatic theology is the next stage in the process where you don't just say how the idea works, but you declare it as something that must be believed. So in that sense, you're you're dogmatic about the claims of your systematic theology. 
So you get lots of, well, there, there are a number of different writers in Bavinck's period who try and write works in dogmatic theology in response to this great crisis of faith that comes about in the generation before. Um, but then Bavinck is the one that we still talk about because um, his, his work was was the best by far from his generation in terms of its, of its um, rigor, in terms of its capacious um, engagement with, uh, with scriptural exegesis, with the history of the development of, of Christian theology, mm. particular doctrines, but also the insight and the precision um, with which Bavinck could, could then derive these doctrines forward as well. So that kind of backdrop of just not being sure, can we believe any of this, is is quite a stark backdrop to the fact that then Bavinck responds, he emerges and responds with reformed dogmatics, with these four volumes on the truths that that must be believed, um, but also with with a with well a lot of writing to explain how the doctrines work and where they came from and what it means to articulate them in in his particular day and age. You know that distinction between systematics and dogmatics is such an important one. And yeah. this is where, I mean, Bavinck's contributions shines through in countless ways. When I think of, you know, the context today, uh, per, just with the the way that, uh, you know, you even take uh, a movement like evangelicalism and just the the numerous amounts of publications and uh, even commitments to evangelical beliefs, we are somewhat spoiled, <laughs> I would say, it, because uh, we more or less assume uh, dogmatics. But uh, Bavink is living in a day when uh, that assumption, well, it, it, those, those around him are arguing just the opposite. Uh, mm. You know, it reminds me of his, um, his lecture, I think it is, uh, The Science of Sacred Theology, in which he makes a claim that, on the one hand, you know, when I teach my students, this is a claim that should be just so basic. But on the other hand, in light of uh, Bobbing's own day and then today and some of the challenges, it's it's a very uh, radical statement to make, uh, mm-hmm. in which he argues that, well, theology, the theology that he was wit- witnessing around him, like you just described, it's been secularized. You know, at one point, you know, he's going to interact, you know, with not just um, figureheads like Schleiermacher, but uh, like those, some of his own uh, professors and eventually Mm. colleagues to to say that, yeah, it's theology has been turned into anthropology. And Bobbing then turns to say, well, then theology to counter this theology must be theologized, (laughs) Mm. Uh, a a type of theological theology. It's, yeah. you know, having read Augustine, uh, certainly Aquinas, uh, Bavink, mm. Bavink sounds a lot like them at this point. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, very much so. So I think, um, so for listeners who haven't read the, the biography um, or who, haven't, who aren't familiar with that particular lecture, so this is really one of the first times that Bavink lets his own theological voice be heard mm. after he finishes his studies at Leiden and, and he's appointed as a professor at his denomination seminary. And he begins this lecture by interacting with one of his former professors who had written that that in essence to have a future theology has to be secularized. And as you say, Bavinck's response is to do the opposite, is to say that theology has to exist on its own terms. It has to be theological in its character and principles and purpose, or it is nothing. 
And in that regard, I think, yeah, you're, you're exactly right in saying that really what he's doing there is carrying on a much longer tradition, um, the, the tradition that you find in, in Augustine with the, the idea that there is such a thing as sacred doctrine mm-hmm. and that it's thinking about a particular subject. Um, and then what you find in, in Aquinas as well. Um, so he's tapping into that kind of theological tradition that we also find later in John Webster with this idea of theological theology. Mm. It's a really meaningful um, adjective to apply to theology, but it's that it has to exist uh, on its own terms. Uh, it has its own unique subject, it has its own idiosyncratic logic, um, and it has to to live and, and breathe by and, and breathe those terms um, and, and Baving saw very early on that that had to be the case in his context as well. And, uh, and I think what you find throughout his, his development as a theologian and as, as a public thinker on lots of different things with what we could conventionally see as theology, so education or psychology or um, poetry, biography, journalism, um, what you see actually is just that idea that theology has to be theological, extending out in lots of different directions. And I think that's part of what makes them so interesting, actually. There's this, it's a very similar insight to the insight that you find, as you said, in Aquinas and Augustine and later figures like Webster as well. Um, but Bavinck's life uh, takes place at a very interesting point in history where one person actually has the opportunity to try and live this out and pursue that in, in many different directions at once. So it gives his life a, a polymathic character, mm. uh, which is always interesting anyway, to find one single human being who does a lot of different things to a, a surprisingly high degree, uh, because most of us you know, tend to be more uh, one-track people in the things that we try and achieve with our lives. So a polymath is always an interesting uh, figure anyway, and they tend to attract biographers uh, regularly, and Bavinck's no exception, actually. Um, but I think what, for, I guess for me as a Christian, as a biographer, what makes him all the more interesting is is that I think a lot of well, what he's trying to do with his life is really an extension of this early belief that theology is, is so compelling from within itself, um, and that it has this um, explanatory power that extends out to cover all things. Um, and again, that's, you know, you have Aquinas in the background there with the, this idea that theology is um, is God and everything else in the light of God. Mm. Uh, and the, Bavinck really runs with that, with that impulse as well across uh, all these different spheres of his life. That's right. He really does. In fact, uh, when I've read, I've returned to Bavinck, uh, usually each semester as I'm preparing my own uh, lecture notes for um, for class. I, I always keep returning to Bavink. and uh, but as I've over the years as I've done so and simultaneously keep reading figures like Augustine and Aquinas, um, it, it's always it always reminds me of uh, someone like Aquinas who that basic yeah. definition of theology uh, seems to really have an influence on him. You know, this is one of the reasons why uh, when Bavink uh, rubs up against modern theologians. At one point, you talk about how these modern theologians they rejected the supernatural in favor of a strict materialism, mm. and and in contrast, Bavink comes on the scene and he says, "Well, reality needs metaphysics," which mm. which today we're still, um, you know, even Christian theologians are still. Uh, I think Bavink probably would have a lot maybe some correction to even contemporary Christian theologians who still struggle to get there. 
Bovink seems to be saying that if you if you approach reality without um, this this met Christian metaphysic in place, well then you really are only going to play by the the rules of the game set by modern theologians. Which that that raises a, another question as to how to interpret Bovink. Uh, you are very familiar with uh, interpreters of Bovink, and mm. there's been a tendency among some to kind of look at Bovink and interpret him more in a modern uh, trajectory, if we could put it that way. But you, even at the start of your biography, as well as in, you know, in some of your past works, uh, you have kind of pushed back against certain interpretations of Bovink. How so? Mm. Yeah, well, so if you look at Bovink's own um, direct engagements with the modern theologians from the Leiden School in his own lifetime, um, there are two generations of Leiden modern theologians that he engaged with. Uh, so the first generation was his own professors who were older than he was. And he he did share his work with them, but and, and it was very confrontational theologically uh, in terms of, I mean, with, with the speech that we just mentioned, the science of sacred theology. Uh, he's, when he says that, that their theology is really anthropology, what they study is just humans and, and not really God on God's own terms. And he, he's basically saying that their school of theology is an idol factory. It's, uh, it just turns out idols of the mind. That's quite a thing to say to your professors when you've just <laughs> finished, your, you finished your doctorate relatively recently. And he was very nervous about uh, them reading, reading his critiques of, of their theology. Yeah. Uh, because the, the claims are very stark. Um, but what he experienced from them, I think, was quite a disengaged, unengaging toleration. They really liked him personally. He really liked them personally. And um, they they accepted, you know, you do your thing and we do ours. But after they passed away, there was a new generation of, of modern theologians in the Leiden school sense who appeared who then really became much more direct and confrontational towards Bavink. And um, they argued that you cannot be an Orthodox Christian and a modern person, because for them to be an Orthodox Christian meant um, that you, know, you believed in the supernatural and miracles, that you believe in a God who practices self-revelation and who can speak into the world. Um, you have what we would now call an enchanted view of the world um, rather than um, a disenchanted view, to use those, I guess, more recent terms, which is that, you know, you believe in a world of predictability, of cause and effect, and, and a world without surprises in that sense. Um, so these, the second generation of modern theologians said, Bavink, you claim to be an Orthodox Christian, and yet you also claim to be, in some sense, modern, but that's impossible, because to be modern and to be Orthodox, um, well, that, that's, an, that's not a combination that works. They're like oil and water. Mm. So they would say that John Calvin, for example, was clearly an Orthodox Christian, because he's, uh, you know, he ha they would say he has something like an enchanted worldview and believes in the supernatural, and he's not modern either. Um, whereas they would say to Bavink, you're really a liberal theologian, um, but dressed up in pious garb. Wow. And um, so they really tried to pull the rug out from under Bavink's feet. Um, but I think to their surprise, Bavink didn't think that the rug was moving at all. Mm. And he thought that he pulled the rug out from under their feet by, uh, by making his own arguments for the relationship of modernity and orthodoxy in, in quite a different way to them. Um, so for Bavink, he thought that... Um, that orthodoxy, 
um, to believe the right things about the Christian faith and the things that need to be believed. He thought that that wasn't a static term, um, as though it's frozen at one point in history and never continues to develop. Um, so, and I guess I should be really careful to clarify what I think Baving does with this. So he's not at all a radical doctrinal revisionist, um, where, you know, if you think that the kind of metaphysics or the truth claim from some earlier age just um, doesn't work now because of all the things we know in the age of enlightenment, you know, you, you, you kind of, you keep the shell of the car, but you put a completely new engine inside it. Um, so Bavink is not that kind of a theologian at all. Um, so he's not a radical revisionist. And when he develops doctrine, he does so, um, I think, with, with exceeding care. But he did think that, that orthodoxy is something that continues to develop across the history of the church. And that, um, you know, he has this great line that, um, that, a, that a complete dogmatics does not yet exist. So a, a truly authoritative, complete account of the, 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 the doctrines of the Christian faith doesn't exist on earth yet. Um, it's, it, we, that's what um, the, the church is called to do generation after generation. So he challenged their understanding of orthodoxy as though orthodoxy just means some kind of naive view of the world and God that people believed in the medieval era or the 16th century, but that we're too sophisticated for. In fact, he said orthodoxy is means something very different. And orthodoxy continues to develop. And it continues to take root in different cultures and different phases of human history. And he thought that it continued to develop even in the modern age. And um, so he, he continues to develop his arguments for why um, modernity doesn't preclude being orthodox, but also why being orthodox doesn't preclude being part of the modern age. And um, so for Bavink, that meant um, that, well, so I guess the way that I try and characterize it in the biography is that I think being modern at that period and still today, is really a game of give and take. Um, so modernity is a, is a negotiation. There are all kinds of claims that are part of the modern world, but modern people themselves are never obligated to accept all of them wholesale. And in fact, modern people, I think, constantly um, it rebuilds the kind of modern cultures that they that they find themselves within, and I think Bavink was the same. So there are lots of parts of his thought that are that are modern. Um, he was a thoroughly, thoroughly modern person culturally, um, inhabited a new modern liberal democratic society that only came into existence six years before his birth. Uh, for example, in the Netherlands, it wasn't a democracy until then. Um, so he, there are all kinds of ways that that he needs to let his orthodoxy take root and develop in the modern world that he lived in, but he thought that was fundamentally possible. Um, so I think that his own life strivings are to be both um, a modern European but also an orthodox Calvinist, and the biography, as I've written it, is very much the story of of how and why that develops. Mm. Um, but I guess part of what I wrote as well is, is what I think is, is a necessary corrective to, to what you mentioned in your question, which is that for a lot of the 20th century, people who wrote about Bavinck, tend, well, a lot of them tended to assume a great deal of tension between his the, the modern aspect of his life story and the orthodox aspect of it. Um, and also tended to assume a basic um, lack of compatibility between those two things and in, in a way that I think is just not necessary when you read Bavink's own writings and when you get to know his life quite well. I think it's a misunderstanding of what he was trying to do. 
Um, but what you would find if you, so what you do find if you read um, some secondary literature written on Bavinck, particularly well, throughout the 20th century, but especially in the second half of the 20th century, is that people would talk about two Bavinks, an orthodox Bavink and a modern Bavink. And he starts to look quite like a Jekyll and Hyde character in Reformed theology. Or when you read his work, you'll find one page that's engaging with uh, the classics of the Christian tradition, early modern Dutch Reformed theology, or John Calvin, or that's thoroughly committed to the, the ancient Christological creeds of the church. And people will talk about that as the as a page that was written by the Orthodox Bavink. But then you move on a page and then he's engaging with modern psychology and doing so appreciatively, or you find that he has something nice to say about something Schleiermacher has read or something mm -hmm. like that. And people would say that that section was written by the modern Bavink. And it's almost like a kind of redaction criticism with how people, some people talk <laughs> about the Old Testament. That yeah. you know, in this section it talks about Yahweh, in that section it talks about Elohim. Uh, these must be different authors, right? So we, you're trying to kind of peel back these layers to find really which of the Bavinks wrote this particular section. So that was the way that people, a lot of people read Bavink when I first um, began to read not only Bavink, but also other literature on him. And um, I think what I became uh, conscious of fairly soon was that, that this was going to get quite fruitless quite quickly. Yeah. Um, because what you find is it's just that people were, were dividing up his work and some people saying, I like this part, but not that part. Uh. Um, and, and you make Bavink into a couple of, a couple of echo chambers, really. Yeah. And the more I started to read him, the more I realized that none of this is, is necessary at, at all. And that's not to say that his life wasn't conceptually challenging or that there weren't tensions with trying to live how he lived and think how he thought. But he did try and live and think like that. And we really need to get to grips with that to try and understand the, the challenge of being a, a Christian that he set himself in his own historical period mm. and cultural moment. So I... I in my first book, I'm in the biography. I've really tried to um, maybe shake the foundations of a lot of those assumptions about there being two Bavinks or, or the idea that that should be the assumption that you bring to read his works uh, with, um, where you're looking for that kind of tension. Um, I try and um, read Bavink through quite a different lens, which is the, the lens that lets him try and speak for himself as one person in history who's, who's trying to live in a very particular way. And I think that looking at him in that way makes a lot of sense, actually, when you read him in a more historical way um, as the product of a particular family. So, for example, I, I begin with a chapter on um, on his parents and then also a chapter on his, his denomination. And when you get into those details and look at um, his parents and the way that they tried to understand changes in society and what it meant to be a pious reformed family in that context and also his denomination as well uh, you realize that actually these questions about how to be orthodox in the modern world are not unique to Herman Bavink um, they're also shared by his, his parents they're they're quite common across his denomination as well so there are lots of people who are out there asking the same questions and I think what is unique and remarkable about Herman Bavink is that um that he runs with the questions that a lot of people are asking and he really excels in answering them and embodying them as well um, and manages to write at a very high level across a lot of different fields and topics and uh, also in terms of his own progress in society um, he was as you know as high achiever as, as you could possibly imagine in his own uh, historical period um, so I think that when you start to get the bigger picture you actually see that it, it just doesn't make sense to read Bavink with this constant assumption of 
um, you know, the Jekyll and Hyde story. And it's yeah. not a very interesting story either. And it makes for pretty boring <laughs> readings of Bavinck. So I think that putting it all together and trying to read one Bavinck um, across his lifetime is much more interesting. It's much more exciting. Um, very, very helpful. Yeah, we. one way that I've, I've said this to, uh, to students of mine is try to make sure you are avoiding a reading of, of Bavinck that is schizophrenic, <laughs> that, yep. that is, uh, you know, almost two-faced. Yep. Uh, this, this whole discussion, you know, I can't, can't help, especially as, um, as, a, as a theologian located in America, mm. uh, to, to be fascinated by uh, Bavinck's uh, journey to America at one point, um, towards the end of the... Um, really the 19th century, uh, then going into the the 20th century, right on the, the edge there of uh, really the turn of the century, he takes this, this trip to America. And this is fascinating to me because on the one hand, he is very uh, intrigued and, and there's a sense of curiosity. Is mm. curiosity here is he really is uh, just a very humble observer and he's noticing kind of this um, this what he calls a, a go ahead American spirit, mm. uh, and, and that, that's uh, very ambitious, uh, whatever city it's in. Um, and yet at the same time, he's noticing how, and I would say there's certainly some truth here, how uh, in terms of the church, Arminianism has taken root, uh, or, or what. You might call uh, he, at one point you you mentioned this where you say um, it's a an America flooded with Methodist water, mm. and uh, that that coupled with just the rise of uh, moralistic deism simultaneously, uh, certain certainly and, and we could even throw in their pantheism, uh, certainly leads Bavinck to to conclude well Calvinism doesn't really have have a future here. At one point, he says um, he says something to the effect of there there's clearly no rosy future mm. awaiting Calvinism in America. Now, this is intriguing to me. I I wonder, and I'd love to hear what you think about this. Uh, I mean, obviously, he's addressing what he's seen in his own day. So it's always hard to predict the future. Do you think in one sense, it seems like Bavinck's right. There, I mean, you look at uh, how America has developed. There is a secular uh, theme that runs throughout, and that moralistic deism that that he first pinpointed. I would say, even if it's not in a formal way, it, it continues to pervade, especially at mm. the lay level. Continu continues to pervade, and yet simultaneously, I wonder whether he might be maybe pleasantly surprised as in the same context now in the 20th and 21st century, we've seen at least a certain type of Calvinism crop up uh, in both Presbyterianism uh, throughout America, oh. kind of reacting against, you know, early to mid 20th century, reacting against, um, uh, you know, modernity and, and its effects with modern theology. And uh, maybe even at a wider level, which he was aware of this, a wider level just in the churches, non-denominationally even, wow. with how Calvinism has, has been influential. What, 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 what's your take on, um, you know, if we could bring Bavinck, bring him back, you know, mm. <laughs> bring him back to, uh, to America today, uh, 
would he be disappointed? Would he be surprised? Both? What do you think? Mm, wow. Yeah, that's a, a really fascinating set of questions. Um, so when we think about Bavincon America, as you noted already, he went there twice. So once when he was a young theologian in 1892, and then a bit later in life in 1908. And um, comparing those two visits and his own frame of mind and his observations about America, it's a really fascinating task because they're so strikingly different. As you said, when he went there first as a young man, he had a very high set of ideals about the artful traveler, the traveler who doesn't just um, look down on things because they're not the same as where I come from, but instead the person who has a very cultivated sense of appreciation of the forum and who doesn't rush into judgments about the mm -hmm. forum. So he only, at least publicly, has nice things to say um, about America on that trip, or in most things anyway. He does have some um, points of critique, but... It's, it's overwhelmingly, you know, a, a piece of kind of travel that reflects his own ideals about how to travel at that point and how to make the most of the opportunity to become a more cultured person still. Um, and although he does conclude there that there's no rosy future for, for Calvinism in America at that point, um, he's still quite, you know, hopeful about the future of the Christian faith there. And in fact, that's the scene of one of his most um, striking claims about Calvinism that it's not the only truth, um, which um, was you know quite a controversial thing to say when he went back to the Netherlands sure. and, and told them that, that the gospel would still flourish, even if it's not <laughs> a, a Calvinistic gospel. Yeah. Um, but then when you look at his second um, journey to America in 1908, he's in a different phase of life. He's more mature. I think he was more conservative in terms of his personality hmm. uh, in a way that you know, happens a lot when people get into midlife. Um, and he has, I think he really had given up on the ideals of being, um, you know, this, this artful young traveler. And um, he really doesn't hold back when, when he has to critique America when he returned to the Netherlands. So I think that he was polite enough while he was in the States. And there, I mean, he, the kind of things that he says in his public lectures are, they're, they're really fascinating to read his own public reflections on whether the American experiment would fail, for example, uh, particularly because of racism, uh, because of the problems of trying to mm. establish a culture on, uh, at least initially, the, the, the practical necessity of enslaved labor, uh, human labor. He, uh, for him, that was, uh, he, he just couldn't see how, you know, how do you form a lasting stable society on this? Um, the, the whole experiment, he thought, was um, was so deeply problematic, and he was very um, challenged and unsettled by uh, examples of racism that he saw on that second trip. And mm. he, he, when he returned to the Netherlands, he, he really did speak in, in fairly apocalyptic terms about what might happen in America in the in the coming decades, that it could descend into uh, civil war and bloodshed and chaos. Um, so the, the later Bavink was um, far more fearful about the future of America than the young Bavink. Um, and I think something I tried to draw out in the biography was that all across his life, and also his parents as well, they were very strongly anti-emigrationist. Mm. So there's a lot of Dutch emigration to the to the New Worlds in, that, in, in his lifetime, particularly of, of Reformed Christians. And the Bavinks were always strongly against that. 
Um, and that comes across in what he says about America after each of these journeys to America. But the first time around is, as you say, he goes back to the Netherlands and tells lots of young Christians that the American soil is flooded with Methodist water. Yeah. And if you go there, you'll become Arminian. So you'd be <laughs> much better staying here wow. in your own country and staying Calvinist. Um, but in the second, after the second journey to America, um, it's really, you know, don't go to America because it's not going to go well there in the coming decades. Your, your life will be safer if you stay here. Um, America is, is just is, is a violent culture that's at risk of collapsing under the weight of its own violence. Um, and he did you know, look for hope in the gospel uh, for America. Um, but also he, he was really troubled by how segregated church life uh, seemed to him in America as well. So he wasn't sure if the gospel was being looked at penetratingly enough to realize that that's for Bavink the solution to racialized hatred. Um, so I think that the the later Bavink, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a weird question to answer from a you know historian's perspective. Um, but you know, if he'd been cryogenically frozen, if we brought him back to life now, <laughs> um, I think that he would find parts of America today um, maybe resemble Europe of his day, mm. at least some subject subsections of American culture where there is a lot of despair. Um, maybe more so than just a kind of cheery optimism, which is what he thought America was like in his, his early experience of it. Um, so if you think of the kind of cultural context that he lived in as a European, especially as a young European towards the end of the 19th century, the 19th century was a really hard time to live through in Europe. Um, it wasn't the, the easiest or you know, most pleasant of centuries to live through. So if you think of the first half of that century, um, that's you know Europe in its pre-democratic phase. It's the very end of the era of strongman monarchs who, you know, can be quite totalitarian um, and uh, you know autocratic, dictatorial in how they like to run things. And then that leads to this year of revolts and revolutions in 1848, and that's also when the Netherlands became a democracy. Um, but before then, you know, you don't really have modern liberal democratic freedoms to live as you wish. It's also so it's a century of war, of of, of bloodshed, of a lot of death, also a century of famine, uh, of starvation. And that's, that's why so many 19th century Europeans left for the new world. Europe was a bleak place to be. Yeah. And if you stayed, it's also the century of um, well, especially the second industrial revolution, uh, re re second industrial revolution. So, if you're a poor European who finds himself working in a factory day and night, uh, you know you die young because your just the working conditions of your life have been terrible. And mm. um, Europe was a was a century, especially at the end of the, that century, was really a time of despair. So, you look at some of the buzzwords in Europe at that point, and they are the great German word Weltschmerz, um, to be uh, just weary of the world, to be sick of it. Mm. Or in French, you would talk about the mal du siècle, like just the sickness of the century. Um, so you find Europeans in that context who are really just bleak and pessimistic about the future. And Baving also thought there was this philosophical shift away from deism to pantheism in European philosophy that had also really become part of just how people imagined God in the world, that, that God is, they've been told that God was the world and that God was everything or was in everything. But then if the world as you experience it is a really bleak and uh, harsh and, and uh, tragic place, um, you know, why would you be so um, motivated to try and live an upstanding moral life 
to keep God happy. God has already let you down, so why shouldn't mm -hmm. you just think, well, I'll let God down too? Um, whereas he felt that when he went to America as a young man, um, that they were still deistic, that they believed in a distant God who just wants them to be uh, upright, moral citizens, and if they do that, God will be happy. And they just they weren't scarred by the kind of things that, that Europeans were scarred by. So if you look at Bavinck's writings after his first trip to America, you find basic but um, noted observations about how in America everyone has enough to eat. Mm. Um, that's not something he could say in Europe at that point wow. for everyone. Um, and uh, so you know, it's, it's, I think if, if you were to ask the young Bavinck to look at America today, um, uh, yeah, I think that it, it would be a very different America mm. to the one that he saw, even yeah. in terms of politics. You know, so the young Bavinck said, isn't this fantastic that the Republicans and the Democrats treat each other so civilly? They're, they're really <laughs> nice. To each other. They're much nicer to each other than Dutch politicians of uh. rival parties. And he said, the Republicans say that if you're a Democrat, you can be a Christian. And the Democrats say that if you're a Republican, you can be a Christian. <laughs> and, and no one denies anyone else a place uh, in heaven because yeah. of their political party. And that's not what happens in Dutch politics. Yeah. So, so I think it, America now would be a really big shock to the young Bavink. <laughs> so the older Bavink, though, um, I think that he would, at least there, there are parts of American culture, I think, that are still you know, marked by um, moralistic deism. And, you know, there's the kind of Christian Smith level of analysis where we now talk about it as moralistic therapeutic deism, where the modern concept of the self as this thing that's primarily concerned about, you know, healing its own neuroses. That's something that, that, that has developed a lot since Bavinck. And, you know, we now live in the age of Freud, maybe more than the age of Nietzsche. Um, but the, he would certainly, I think, recognize a big subsection of American culture as still being concerned with moralistic deism. Mm. Um but I think there, now there's probably another subsection of American culture that's much more uh, like Europe in Bavinck's day mm. or Europe today, where I think there's more, maybe more Weltschmerz, uh, maybe more of a mal de siècle, you know, where, where people really despair of the world. It's not what they want it to be. Um, and there's maybe just some of the things that Bavinck um, thought were typical of Europe, uh, maybe more of a moral indifference, um, just this, a frustration with everything. Yeah. Yeah. A feeling of being let down. You know, as he returns to Europe, uh, he certainly, especially as he gets older, this the, the presence of a secularizing post-Christian Europe just becomes uh, undeniable. It, for him, it, it's, it's unavoidable in, in some sense. Like, there's no way that uh, even Reformed theologians can... You know, pretend like it's not present. It's and, and Bavink even sees it creeping into the church in different ways. Mm -hmm. As he uh, returns to Europe, and uh, you know, at one point, really at the beginning of the 20th century, you have the rise of not just a secularization, but uh, especially a type of well, what we might today call a new atheism with Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. How does is, is you think of like 1904, for example, when when he publishes this book, Christian Science. Mm. And here it seems as if Bavinck is is moving beyond just, you know, a merely, you know, presentation of Christian beliefs to actually uh, you even say at one point um, a type of uh, there's a type of innovation in Bavinck, mm. in in the good sense of that word, 
that mm-hmm. that is capable then of matching the novelty of Nietzsche's atheism. What do you mean by that? And and how does really how does this in some sense drive the type of reform dogmatics that mm. Baving's really trying to accomplish? Yeah, sure. Well, in the first place, there were atheists in the Netherlands um, in the 1880s and 90s. So towards the end of the 19th century, when Bavink was really emerging as a theologian of repute, and when he was working on the first edition of the Reform Dogmatics. Um, But those atheists were, um, well, I guess the best way to describe it is to say that although they thought that they'd taken God out of the picture, most of the picture still stayed the same in terms of what we could call a moral imagination for society. So there's no God, they argued, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the kind of norms and values that we have for society remain the same, the kind of moral judgments that we all take for granted remain. So by removing God, they thought, you don't really change the picture that much in terms of society or culture or day-to-day life. Um, instead, we just remove the, the problem in the picture that they thought. Um, but uh, so th- those atheists were around in the um, in the eighteen eighties and nineties. Their atheism was driven by a, a kind of materialist view of science, and Bavink engaged with them. But what Bavink thought was really interesting across those decades was um, that in the eighteen nineties, especially that kind of moralistic materialist atheism really uh, ran out of steam as a movement, and actually quite a few high-profile figures in that movement then uh, became theists. So they didn't all become Orthodox Christians, to Bevink's disappointment, but they did become theists of one kind or another. And in that phase of life, uh, Bevink really did think that that, um, the next phase of Dutch culture, after it had seen off the atheist challenge, was going to be a mass return to Calvinism and to this new modern kind of Calvinism that um, that, that he and Abraham Kuyper were developing. Um, but that's not the way that things worked out in Dutch culture, because although this early kind of moralistic scientific atheism uh, really uh, uh, kind of passed away, there was a new kind of atheism that sprang up. And that was the atheism, as you said, of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher. Uh, so during his own lifetime, Nietzsche was was really obscure in the Netherlands. People didn't pay much attention to him. There was a little bit of interest in him, in him towards the end of his life. Um, but he became uh, suddenly and quite astonishingly popular after his death. And he died in 1900. And what's novel about Nietzsche's atheism was the claim that if you remove God from the picture, the entire picture has to change. And in fact well, we're not bound to carry over any of the, the well, what I call in the, in the book, the moral trappings of theism. So if you take God away, um, then actually every value that you have has to be scrutinized and it has to be revalued. And there's not a single moral value that's a given that will definitely just stay because none of it's self-evident. 
Um, Nietzsche had argued that that Western culture was profoundly shaped by Jesus, and that was its failing. Um, so what you find is is this uh, this new kind of atheism that that really thinks that um, that Jesus is the thing that has spoiled everything. Um, so Jesus is the one that that we need to get rid of um, in terms of. Um, all of the ways that, that, that Jesus affects um, how we think about God, how we think about society, how we think about our own lives and each other. So there's a, there's a new kind of atheism that emerges that's thoroughly novel. And, and Baving himself was very aware of this. I think he was much more aware of it than most in the Netherlands. And it does lead him to do some quite novel things um, in, in, I think, a really good sense as a Christian theologian. Um, so he'd written uh, one edition of the Reform Dogmatics that was finished in the, very early in the 20th century. Um, but so much changed at the beginning of the 20th century um, and so much changed so quickly through Nietzsche and the, the kind of cult of Nietzsche that grew up in the Netherlands where people were, um, were de-Christianizing rather than just becoming maybe post-Christian in a sense that still carries over a lot of um, leftovers from Christianity. People now saw Jesus as a bad thing rather than, you know, Jesus who was at least nice or something like that, even if, if people don't follow him, but we at least say good things about him. In fact, people, some people started to see Jesus as a positive evil in society. And if you think of, of Nietzsche himself, his New Testament hero is explicitly as Pontius Pilate rather than Jesus, because Pilate looks out for his own interests and tries to um, further his own might and accumulation of power in the world. So that is, is a fundamental shift. Um, it's a seismic shift. Uh, I really, I mean, it turns the tables on on the whole of, of Dutch culture as, as Bavink understood it. So Bavink has to do, to do something different. And in fact, his life uh, subtly sh changes track in lots of ways in the age of Nietzsche for the last two decades of his life. In terms of the dogmatics, you see that developing in that he then spends years and years, so the, you know, the best part of a decade, producing a second edition of the dogmatics that is written for a changed world. Um, so it's uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of pages that have been added if you just add up the sheer increase in content. Um, but it, it's it's a so he, he has to reformulate his dogmatics in that kind of really substantial way, adding to it in very many ways. Um, and, you know, what's so interesting about Bavink's dogmatics, if you compare it to other comparable works in written in the 20th century or the 19th century by reformed theologians, is that volume one begins with a prolegomena so this you know f the first things that need to be said before we start doing theology how we ask questions about knowledge and about the knowledge of god um, how we understand ourselves as thinking agents who are doing theology uh, baving's prolegomena is, is actually quite remarkable if you look at it in relation to the other reformed theologians who are writing around the same time and i think it shows how he, attuned he is to the great questions of the day that changed in the early 20th century because of this novel kind of atheism. Um, there are other things that are novel in Baving's own life that develop in this context as well, even if they, they might not sound as novel uh, you know, to evangelical Christians today. Uh, but he becomes really heavily invested in evangelism in the last two decades of his life um, in a way that's quite novel in Dutch culture. Mm. Uh, so that he starts to think that there are Dutch people who look and sound like him, but functionally they are 
they're pagans. Um, they don't have any shared framework of common moral imagination. They have no respect at all for Jesus. Um, so they they have to be treated as though you know we're now going to contact um, unreached people groups, um, even though they speak the same the same language and have the same nationality as us. They inhabit a very different world. So that, that becomes something that's really important to him, uh, um, apologetics on the home front. So and you find a lot of work by Bavinck in that phase of life, which is explicitly about evangelism and about missiology. So he tries to have a chair for, miss, for missiology established at the Free University of Amsterdam, where he was working. Um, so he starts to even writing st- some stuff on church planting in the New Testament. I mean, he doesn't use the word church planting, but when you look at what he's writing about, it's he's moving in that way of thinking. Uh, and in lots of ways, he's kind of before his time. Um, but he also, um, and this is one of the most significant things that I tried to bring out in the biography, um, he starts to um, balance his writing, which is kind of an, an extended apologetic for reform theology and for Calvinism. He starts to balance that with other works that are more generic uh, apologetics for Christianity. Um, Some people in the past, I think, uh, especially his first biographer, his first Dutch biographer, misunderstood what he was doing there and thought that he'd lost confidence in Reformed theology and instead had started to believe in a more generic kind of Christianity. But that's actually not what you see at all. What you see with Bavink is that he realizes that Nietzsche hasn't come just you know, specifically for the Reformed theologians or the Calvinists or the Orthodox ones, Nietzsche actually hates Jesus himself hmm. and hates every kind of Christianity and thinks and you know Nietzsche doesn't respect liberal Christianity um, uh, and thinks that that's the cool kind and just you know hates the Reformed kids or the Orthodox ones. Nietzsche actually has no time for any of it because it all comes from Jesus himself in one way or another. People are all trying to pay attention to Jesus and you know they might understand Jesus very differently, but Jesus is the problem. So we have to get rid of him. And then once you get rid of him, then the you know the whole of Western culture changes and Christianity is gone. So you're you're trying to chop down the tree at the base of the trunk rather than just chopping off a branch here or there. And and Bavink saw that that historically this the reformed faith uh, that he confessed was a branch from this, you know this great tree that has grown throughout history. So what you have to do is go and tackle the axe man who's coming and he's really aiming at the bottom of the trunk. And if you don't do that, it doesn't really matter what you do to try and save your own branch because the tree will be toppled. So what you find is that he keeps on publishing books on Calvinism right towards the end of his life and also keeps on working on his dogmatics, but just for various reasons doesn't have the opportunity to release a third edition. But he also writes lots of interesting works that are titled you know like you said christian science or the christian or christian worldview or there's a book that's just called christianity so he's doing all these things about christianity and also gives political speeches that are on christianity as well as political speeches that are on calvinism gives lots of public lectures on christianity as well as this stuff on calvinism but it's actually a a, actually a balancing effort because of Nietzsche and because of this new kind of Nietzsche's, Nietzsche and atheism. So that's a very novel thing in Bavink's life. And it's not a feature that you see in his in his earlier writings um, in the same kind of way. It's, it's just a really interesting thing to have picked up on in the biography. And I think it's still worthy of reflection for, uh, for Christians today, whichever tradition they're in, actually, um, to think through the questions of, of Christianity and to think through maybe more foundational issues of faith and unbelief in the first place. Um, so I think the cultural period that we live in is, is still an extension of the one that Bavink 
saw approaching and having lived through a couple of decades of it towards the end of his life. But um, I think that those issues are still ongoing. We've been talking to James Eglinton about his work on Bavinck, a critical biography, uh, specifically Bavinck's reform dogmatics, uh, what motivated those dogmatics, what what drove them in a reform direction, but as James was just talking about, what also, uh, towards the latter half of Bavinck's life, in light of figures like Nietzsche, uh, drove those dogmatics to actually be a wider defense of Christianity itself. Uh, I would just recommend to our listeners, uh, do pick up uh, James's uh, biography of Bavinck, and uh, more than that, uh, after you read it, go pick up uh, Bavinck's Reform Dogmatics. Among his other books, I think that you will not only uh, find yourself fortified in Reformed uh, Christianity, but also Uh, you will find yourself better equipped to answer some of the challenges still ongoing today, whether it's from uh, new atheism or postmodernism, or also the challenges that keep coming back from modernity itself. James, thank you so much for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure and a delight to talk with you. And I really appreciate your time and the fact that you read the book and had such great questions on it. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.